0: of real importance in one's career don't do anything from a place of emotion it's, it's okay to have emotion do not make career decisions from that place make sure that you are in a place where you're centered and confident and calm welcome to teach me something new
1: i'm your host Britt morin and this is a production of iheartradio and brit co all my life everyone's told me i should focus on being good at one thing but the truth is I'm curious about a lot of things, but how do you learn about everything? The answer, make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Our guest on today's show, Sally Krawcheck, has often been called the most powerful woman on Wall Street. And no wonder, she's been the CEO of Merrill Lynch, Smith Barney, US Trust, the City Private Bank, and Sanford C. Bernstein. She was also the chief financial officer for Citigroup. Yeah, that's a lot. And these days, she's the CEO and co-founder of Elvest, a digital financial advisor for women and the first company of its kind to reach $1 billion in assets under management. Amazing. Today, Sally is here to give us all of her learnings, tips, and tricks for those of us ladies who want a greater financial acumen and faster career advancement. As she likes to say, let's put more money in the hands of more women and you guys know I am a fan of that, so welcome to the show, Sally. I cannot wait to talk to you and accelerate my career as well.
0: <laughs> there we go. Well, thank you. Great to be here, and I'm happy to tell you we're now at 1.2 billion. A few weeks oh, on of assets fast. under management. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's happening, Britt. It's happening. Wow.
1: Okay. Well, I have so many questions about how you got there, but I want to start Mm -hmm. with like how you got here Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this world (laughs) being Sally Krawcheck. Like you have, I just listed out so many like accolades of just your resume. I haven't even gone into like all the lists you've made and all the things, but like, what was it about you when you were little that made you want to just like take over the world of financial expertise
0: in this well, category? I,
1: like the wolf of yeah, Wall Street? <laughs> yeah, the princess of Wall Street?
0: I don't not know. When like, when did I this was happen little. when
1: you were younger? No,
0: no. No. I was hoping David Cassidy would find me and I could sing with him. That's what I wanted when I was younger. Though I always wanted to move to New York. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, and I've always wanted to be sort of where the action is. I always like to run to the fire and visited New York when I was in middle school. It was the first Time really out of the South and just thought, this, I want to do this. And so finance came later when I was in college and it was sort of a hot field at the time where, you know, as Silicon Valley is today, where if you wanted to have a big career, starting on Wall Street was, you know, typically a good path for it. Miserable, but a good path.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of miserable. It doesn't really appeal to me as a woman. Mm -mm. So,
0: like, or what
1: was it? Was it just about, like, making money? Did you just want to yeah. make a lot of money? I did. And you liked numbers?
0: Yeah. No, I, I actually, I took one math class in college. Um, so it wasn't, it was really, frankly, to be in an exciting place. And I'm going to be frank with you. And I know as women, we're socialized not to say this, but I wanted to make money. My parents, the only thing they thought about was money. And I said, I just don't want that to be my life where there's not enough and the credit card debts run up. And so I'd like to make some money. B- but it was horrible. There are parts of Wall Street that are horrible. There are parts of Wall Street that are interesting and engaging and fun, in my opinion. you know. And so my first few years were miserable because I was in investment banking and it was Run for the plane and almost miss it, and you know, pull an all nighter and pull another all nighter. And I just like what? So I went to the more sedate research analyst company research department, which was still exciting and interesting, but wasn't sort of the dog eat dog of the investment banking or trading floors.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting that we're going to get into topics around career advancement Mm -hmm. and some of the patterns you've picked up because you've really seen it from the underbelly of the (laughs) the industry (laughs) where women get the most held back. And in your book, which is called Own It, The Power of Women at Work, you say that we are in the fourth wave of feminism now, so that, (laughs) but this one, this one in particular will usher in unprecedented opportunities for women in business. So what do you mean by that?
0: We are in such an interesting time. Where you know, it used to be, Britt, if you wanted to start a business, you know, you had to buy a factory, you had to figure out how to manufacture widgets, you had to have the widget distribution channel to get the word out. You had to buy really expensive ads on ABC or NBC or CBS, full time people, you know, all of that stuff, right? Business travel today, you can start a business, you can get the word out with you know no cost, if the idea is a compelling idea. You can have part-time people, you don't have to buy the servers, you're in the cloud, you don't have to get on the plane, you're on Zoom. Although you and I would agree, venture capitalists don't fund enough women at a high enough level, there is the ability for us to start businesses in a way that is much less expensive than before. As a result, we have more options than before. And so for so long, Companies that didn't promote people in minorities, people who were underrepresented. What were you going to do? Go either go home or go to another company that might not promote people underrepresented. Now we're getting to a stage, particularly with the information being widely available, where we have more choices and where we can say, if I don't see myself in the C suite, I'm out, you know? And I'll either go to another company where I can get more information about it. There's more online, different websites will tell me where I'm going, or I can do my own thing in a way that my mother just wasn't, didn't have access to.
1: So you think that if I'm summarizing you correctly, this entrepreneurship generation is sort of like the easy ticket out if your career in-house somewhere maybe isn't accelerating as fast as you want, because like you do, you always have that option to go Mm -hmm. out and start your own thing. And it's easier than ever. And it's quicker than ever to mm-hmm. do so is that yeah.
0: right yeah and look it's it's not for everybody some people really like to have the the structure but enough people will say you know I'll I'll try this I started as a side hustle it turns into something or it doesn't again the venture capital dollars are not easy to get that's a whole different can of worms uh, but hopefully with people like you raising venture funds um, <laughs> this thing is starting to move as well
1: well I know and that's that's one of the reasons I raised a venture fund. Mm-hmm. For anyone that doesn't know, it's called Offline Ventures, and we invest in early stage companies that are just getting off the ground, just getting started. But you know, only twelve percent of venture capitalists are female. I mm-hmm. have raised over sixty million dollars for my own company, for Britain Co, and I had to pitch like old white men a lot of the time and no one really understood it. (laughs) and It was frustrating because I knew what I was doing and my numbers were really good and they still wouldn't give me the money. And, and it's part of why I also started self-made, you know, which Mm -hmm. is just, it's a 10 week course for anyone that is interested in entrepreneurship for me to just teach them everything they need to know in like a really quick way to get off the ground because that didn't exist when I was 25 starting my company. So I love what you're saying that there's an option there.
0: Yeah. In FinTech, financial technology, which is what Elevest is. It's a digital driven, digital first financial, you know, investing, but becoming more broad financial wellness platform for women. Thank goodness, Britt, nobody told me when I started that women have raised only 1% of fintech venture capital dollars. I know there's a lot of jargon in there, but over the past 10 years, and somebody, if somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, Sally, just don't bother, you know, it's 1%. Can you overcome that? I've been like, no, I, I can't. Um it's it's tough out there. It's tough in the venture world.
1: Yeah. Uh, 1% of so fintech companies, you know, mm-hmm. financial or financially oriented technology, technology companies or fintech yep. companies. Yeah. So yeah, only 1% of those have been founded by women. And only what 2.3% of all venture-backed companies are founded by women. So that's uh, you know abysmal in itself. And and again, that's my mission in life I've found is yeah. to increase all of these numbers. Um, but also, you know, I do care about women in the workforce as well, right? Yeah. Like women that want to, do want to stick with their companies. And one in four women are now either considering leaving the workplace or mm-hmm. have downshifted their careers in this last year. So what advice would you give these women who are feeling like, do I just jump back in? How do I do that? Or like, how do I level up?
0: Everybody's circumstances are different. and It's hard to give advice to, anyone from sort of a macro perspective. What I can tell you is that, and for some that you have to leave, there, there's no childcare in your area. You know, you're a single mother, your partner or spouse makes so much more money than you do, you know, that it only makes sense. I, I always hate that one, but there are things that are practicalities where, you know, me saying, just keep duking it out every day is not particularly helpful advice. So let's assume, though, <laughs> that you're ready to keep duking it out every day, and that you really want that big career. I, I would say a couple things, one of which is, do not discount the power of holding on by your fingertips when things get tough, that it is tough to go in and out of the workforce. And the research shows that when you do, it is much more expensive than you think, that, you know, you typically say, "Oh my gosh I'm going to take." yeah, two-year break, I'm making 80K a year, you know, that's going to cost me 160K, fine, right? Not great, manageable. The real answer is it's 1.6 million a year. It is 10 times what you think it is. And the reason for that is because when you leave the workforce, you typically do not get back into the same salary, that your marketable value deteriorates pretty quickly by a double-digit percent both years. And by the time you've been out for three years, you know it's it's a re- it's a big double digit percent at the same time you're not investing in your 401k contributing to social security you know there's all the stuff that we at Elevest are all about which is investing you know you're spending out of your savings so you're moving in your terms of your money moving backwards not forwards that's all may be okay but what i don't love is when people make decisions from lack of information you may say 1.6 million absolutely worth it done Um, Or you may say, you know what? That's a lot more than I thought it was. Let me talk to my boss about more flexibility instead. Let me talk to my boss about going part-time instead. Or let me just talk to my spouse about taking some of the evening feedings, right? There, you know, there could be, or let me just, actually my choice, Britt, there are pictures of me on the internet when my children were young and I was holding them by my fingertips where my daughter looks and says, you were ugly, which was fair because I was, you are gaunt, you are tired, you look old. And I'm like, yes, because you were an infant. And so yes, I did.
1: I know. I've gotten mixed advice. You know, my kids are five and six now. And I remember I had to work through most of my quote unquote maternity leave as the founder yeah. of a yeah. startup. It's just really difficult. And even though I tried to take off, like critical things happened that I had to jump in on. Yeah. So I was on this weird hybrid maternity leave. But someone told me, like, they, they just care that they're loved, that they're held, mm-hmm. and that they're like fed and they can sleep. They'll care way more when they're like five and six, aka the, yeah. the ages my kids are now, when they know you're gone, when they have memory of you leaving them. And you know, it's funny because the pandemic created such a shift in my life. I was mm. in New York or LA every other week, every, mm. for the last Same. like three Same. years before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I live in San Francisco. And I haven't been to either of those places in 18 months. And I don't know if I, I don't know. I don't, mm-hmm. I do know. I don't want to go back to that. I used to do television all the time and all of these mm. things that maybe helped my business, but I think they were making me feel good too. Mm. And, and so, you know, I'm trying to discern and make better judgment calls as to when to leave my kids. But I love what you said about how women are the first to just, make a binary decision. I need to be a mom right now. I'm taking off two years of work Mm -hmm. because, and I've now managed hundreds of employees myself, many of whom have done this. There is so much flexibility there. Just tell me you want to work three days a week. Just tell me you want to take on these sort of projects or you want to move to consulting rather than full time. Like, Mm -hmm. let me work with you on this, Right. you don't have to make a black and white decision.
0: Well, and I did earlier in my career when I found out I was pregnant with my son, I'm like, I quit. And I just, I'm sort of shocked that I did it now. It actually ended up working out okay for me because it did give me the time away to actually make a big, big career change, you know, where I could actually sort of get, get inside myself a little bit and try to say, what is it I like, don't like, want to do, don't want to do, you know, where do I want to be, etc. cetera. But um, you're right, in general, don't make any sudden moves, you know, and by the way, also of real importance in one's career, don't do anything from a place of emotion that it's, it's OK to have emotion. Do not make career decisions from that place. Do not have meaningful discussions with your boss from that place. You know, make yeah. sure, you know, that you are sort of in a place where you're centered um, and confident and calm before you before you do that.
1: I think that's an interesting point, right? Because burnout is at max right now Mm. from everyone I've talked to. Like this pandemic is one thing. Zoom life for the last Mm. year is another. Just the election. Everything's been crazy. And everyone wants to take a break right now. Mm -hmm. So what would you tell someone who thinks that they're burnt out, they need to take a break, and they don't know what to do next?
0: Well, and you hear about people, you know, YOLO quitting, rage quitting, You know, the ultimate luxury is take this job and shove it. Um, I'd be a little careful about that. It is so much easier to get a job from a job. You are so much more attractive when you have to be pursued than when you are pursuing. And so if you feel like you need a break, take a break. Take a vacation, right? Take the longest vacation you've ever taken, if you can. Um, Maybe ask for a sabbatical. Maybe ask for flexibility. But if you can try to find... The ability to compartmentalize, which I know is not a popular word, but maybe it's do the work in the day and then give yourself time in the evening. Maybe over a glass of wine, maybe with your best friend to try to think through what it is that is really the the problem, right? Is it that you're tired, or is it that you hate your friggin' job? And if it's you hate your friggin' job, spend the time to try to think about. As I've had the opportunity to do a couple times, what is it? What is it you really want to do? Um, and give yourself that gift. Um, But again, if you can try to do it from a job, um, it just puts you in such a stronger position.
1: And what about hating your job? I think that too often we believe our job is supposed to be like roses and sprinkles. I don't know what the right analogy is every day. Um, But don't we all hate parts of our job, but we have to suck it up and do them? And especially early in our career, I'm sure for you, especially Mm. on Wall Street, like there are parts of your job you did hate, but... You kind it's of have horrible. to grind with it sometimes, right? So what's your advice to someone who, who might hate their job? <laughs> How well, do they discern whether they really hate it or this is just them you having hate your to boss. put in the work?
0: Yeah. No, <laughs> well, that, yeah. look, I mean, and then, you know, you don't leave jobs, you leave bosses. And so it is, you know, it can be working with your boss for these are the things that really energize me and that I think I am can get even better at, can I do more of that, you know, versus can I, you know, this other stuff, is there someone else who enjoys doing it, right? I love doing the earnings model. I hate, I'm not as good at the writing. Can I do more of that? And if you're quite junior, the answer is nope, you you certainly cannot. You have to do it all and, and, and enjoy it. You know, thank you, sir. May I have another? I think it's worth, you know, I actually kept almost a little book on myself in my 20s where I, what do I hate? What do I love? What have I learned? What can I put up with? What am I good at? What am I not so good at? What do I think I can? Like, I sort of got to know myself, Britt. And so my 20s, I hated it. I hated investment banking. I hated everything about it. But, you know, at about the age 29 years and 11 months after having been introspective and realized I love the analysis, I love the writing, I love dealing with smart people, I wanted personal responsibility. I didn't necessarily want to be part of a team. I know that's like saying I don't like mom and apple pie, but that wasn't what energized me. Solving puzzles, I've always been a big, like, ah, I should be a research analyst. And then I went out after it, right? And so just a blanket, I hate it. You know, no, what, what, what is it, what's the flip side of it? Where are you driving towards? And see it as a, mm. another step in the road for you as opposed to this big, dark, heavy cloud of, you know, uh. yeah
1: for sure. <laughs> I agree with that too. And I, as a, as a manager and for anyone out there, that's a manager, I think it's the same thing when, when someone's coming to you to say like, I just, I need to take a break or I'm, I'm quitting, I'm leaving. Obviously, there are exit interviews that many of us typically yeah. do, but sometimes you can get ahead of it because the thing that might be driving one of your employees crazy is solvable. Maybe they really hate right. working on this one task or their they're boss, you know, and so mm-hmm. you move them under a different manager or you switch their tasks up or you they're overloaded. So you find them maybe an intern if they can't have anybody else full time under them. Yeah. And, you so know, look, like one thing I would was- solves for these things. Yeah.
0: Well, one thing I would suggest, which feels unnatural, is view your boss and your head of people ops or your HR contact or whatever it is as your partner in your career. And you're both trying to solve a few different problems, right? How do I advance? so that I can do a better job for the company, so the company can do better, so that I can continue to challenge myself. How how do, you know, what do we need to do for me to make more money, right? What is it, you know, we're solving together because if I'm doing such a good job, the company's doing well, we all want me to make more money. What do we have to do? I'm not happy. Let's solve this problem together because if I walk out the door as an employee, you're going to have to spend time and money finding my replacement and training my replacement. So we together, and I think we see it as adversarial or sort of, you know, we're in, you know, sort of a, a dance of, let me figure out how to make more money. Well, no, sit down with them and say, you know, what, what's it going to take for me to get a 20% raise this year? What do you, what do you think you need to see? What, what would I have to, what would I have to do? That's a great conversation to have. Cause that's a win-win.
1: Right. And when you see men and women negotiating at the table like this, like what are the differences that you've, you've faced in, in your time as a manager, mm-hmm. an employer, um, from those that are trying to negotiate with you to make more money in
0: their role? Well, I can tell you in my days on Wall Street when I managed a, a lot of people, my male direct reports every year came in and told me how big a bonus they wanted and how much money, what a raise they wanted. And they were always these numbers that were just like, no, just no. Um, The women, I got to tell you, and this is a few years ago, never heard a peep from them, not a peep. And there was always the sense of with women, and I think we see this to today, if I do my job well and I get an A, I will get an A and it will be noticed and I will receive the A and that A will be money and promotion, et cetera. And men are like, no, you don't, you don't get what you don't ask for. And so- i'm I'm sheepish to tell you this, um, but what can happen, and I hope it never happened with me, but what can happen is you know you know Sean you know wants is in for five, and he wants ten. Susie doesn't tell you she wants anything, right, and you've got them both in for five, but You know, he wants 10, it's only half of you. You don't want want to go the whole way to 10. You know what, let's give him seven and a half. Well, what happens with her, the two and a half gets taken out of her pay. Um, And at least that's how it worked on Wall Street. That doesn't seem fair, but you used to get a bonus pool or a raise pool and then you figured out where to allocate it. So if you gave more to someone, you had to give less to someone else. And so the risk always was if you weren't in there having that dialogue and everyone else was, that if they didn't know what you th- were thinking, it was the best chances that it was getting taken out of you.
1: Right. So, what's your suggestion then on like the frequency of which you should be having this dialogue? How should you kickstart that conversation? Mm-hmm. And what other ways should you be prepared to negotiate for yourself?
0: The conversation should happen way before the raise event, right? If you know that's in December of every year, for example, then it's at the beginning of the year. Let's. You know, even if your company doesn't do a formal end-of-year kickoff, coming into your boss's office on, you know, maybe it's the end of December, so you start January 1st, or maybe it's the first week of January with a, you know, okay, I've heard the company plan, you know, let me just tell you what I think my contribution's going to be this year. You know, I know we want to increase sales in XYZ by such and such. I really feel like if my team and I are working on a huge social campaign, you know, to drive the blah, 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 whatever it is, right, whatever it is, and you know, if I do these things and and if you've got KPIs, key performance indicators that belong to you, you know, I believe if I drive X to Y and I get this many clean audits, et cetera, you know, I feel like this would be a very good year. I feel like this other thing would be a great year. What do you think? Right. Okay. And with that, you know, I would hope to set myself up to have an above average raise. I know they're typically 2%. I would hope to get 10, whatever. And then keep checking in through the course of the year. Now, there's something scary about doing that because what if I put real numbers on a paper and then I don't make them? Yeah, okay, fine, but what if you don't? And then you'd like your hope all year that someone's gonna magically decide, right? That you've yeah. got the right metrics, you're delivering the right things and they're gonna give you the right number. You know, that's like wishing for Santa Claus. Um, yeah. So you'd much rather, and then keep checking in, you know, end of every quarter, maybe, hey, this is what I really feel like. I'm really proud of my team for this quarter. I really think my team did a great job. I'm really proud of Susie. I don't know why I'm using Susie today. I'm really proud of Stacey <laughs> for this. And, you know, you're sort of modest and humble, but humble bragging, right? Because if it's your team, then it's really, you know, you're also saying you. Um, right. Just, and just, and by the way, ask for feedback. Ask for feedback. This is particularly important as a woman because men get a lot more feedback than women do. A lot more. And, you know, it's stereotypes. She's going to cry and I don't want to upset her. And I don't really, I can be like, Hey dude, knock it off. You, you fucked. Oops. Sorry. You screwed up that presentation. (laughs) Sorry, Brent. (laughs) But with a woman like, Oh, you know, careful. And so that's why we have to ask even more. And the first few times you might get, you're fine, but then get specific. I felt like um, I really felt like that close that I made in the presentation was strong. Do you think there's any way I could have made, do you agree? Do you think I could have made it stronger? Um, mm-hmm. You know, get specific, right? Um, right. Do you, do you know, I've really tried to go after this client. You were in the last meeting. What do you think I could do to improve the pitch? Those kind mm-hmm. of things. And not just the, how am I doing?
1: And you know what I would amend to that is is the Valley Girl voice of mm-hmm. questioning yourself. So what I mean by that is, women typically have this knack for ending their sentences as mm. questions on a high note. So mm. like, for instance, if I was repeating what you just said, do you think I did a good close to that presentation?
0: <laughs> you're like, <laughs> yeah.
1: you're like insecure as yeah. hell when you asked me that question. Mm. The mm. way you said it was, how did you feel about the close of the presentation? Which is like mm. so much more confident, you know? Yeah. and And the way that I would project most men to probably ask about the presentation. And and women do this thing, even when they're asking for a raise. Like, so do you think it might be possible to give me a raise this year? Instead, it could be, I've worked really hard this year. Numbers are up 200%. And I would love to discuss the possibility for a raise. Yeah. You know, yep. just like end it with a period, not a question. Mm -hmm. Your voice is almost monotone, confident, like I see this happen so many times with mm-hmm. my majority female employees and all of these women through self-made. Yeah. And whether you're pitching for investor dollars, a raise, like anything you're pitching for in life, you need to show up confidently
0: when you're pitching. I agree. For let, let me add one other thing. Um, You know, if you really want to have a big career, you also want to be where the power is. And Wall Street, the power is... Profit and loss. You know, are you in a client-facing business, and/or do you own the numbers? So it's no coincidence, Britt. You mentioned I was chief financial officer of Citigroup. That's the numbers. If it's Citigroup, you own the numbers. You've got power, right? And and as you know, one woman at points on the leadership team. Sometimes there were two of us. You know, you can imagine getting drowned out quite a bit. I'm sitting in a room with thirteen men. By the way, most of them were twenty years older, ten to twenty years older than me, and so. I very much could have been that, you know, oh, look at Sally, right? And in fact, the, the boss who eventually invited me to leave would never call on me in the room. But when, when I was CFO, they had to, they had to. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. look, look to where the power is in your company. Again, if it's over in finance and you really just are not about finance or it's marketing, and you fair enough. But if you are wanting to build a career that's really, that's a big one, go for the power.
1: Well, I think the power is always in the numbers, whatever group you're in. Like, even Mm -hmm. at Britain Co., we have editors, we have designers, we have, you know, a lot of creative people. But if they don't know their numbers, they're not going to do their job well. Yes, there's an element of art for every drop of science and math, but it should be informed by the data, Mm -hmm. right? Like, when we create articles, when we create podcast episodes, even, we know. From historical data, what performs well and what gets the most traffic Mm -hmm. and what gets the most clicks. And we are taking that as consumer feedback of what our audience wants more of from Mm -hmm. us and doing Mm -hmm. more of it. So the power goes to those who know the numbers. If you are in a position in your job where you're just being told what to do by your boss every day and doing it without asking questions, I want you to show up tomorrow and say, excuse me, are there any spreadsheets of data or, you know, historical financials or historical metrics that I can be looking at to make smarter decisions. Like mm-hmm. literally, if you say that to your boss tomorrow, oh. I bet it will be amazing, they'll hand, right?
0: you, they'll hand you the raise. They'll hand you the raise. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> because well, but that, your but boss you're hitting, is using those yeah. numbers to make decisions. So if you're in line with your boss's thinking, you're going to, you know, get ahead yeah. of them.
0: Well, and look, you're hitting on an even broader point, intellectual curiosity. And not defining your job as your job, but defining you know your job more broadly. And what else can I do to take things off of my boss's plate, right? That is, that's how I got my first promotions because I would help help him with more things. And all of a sudden, when he gets promoted, he's he's given me a quarter of his job. He sees I can do it. So I get his job. And then people who were not in there, you know, well, Sally's practically worked herself into it.
1: Yeah, I love I love that. Oh my God, when people do that to me, I just want to oh. like hug them oh, even I know. over Zoom.
0: <laughs> oh my like, gosh. Well, the you di- care then, about
1: me and my I plate? Know. Thank you.
0: But the night and day difference when you have someone in a job who knows the numbers, intellectually curious, killing it, working hard, et cetera, and then you just don't have to think about it, you know, and then yeah. you can spend your time either thinking bigger or with people who who need more help.
1: Right, and the only other thing I'd add to that is- the people that are solving problems, not just mm-hmm. suggesting problems to be solved. Oh, so oh drives me It bizarre. kills me drives when me I bizarre. get emails that are no, like, hey, Britt, here are all the problems happening today. Just want to let you know, <laughs> what should know. we do about it? And I'm like, you tell me. What are the three options for each problem you just <laughs> I listed? Know. Which one do I you know. think we should do? Okay, great. Go do it. <laughs>
0: And by the way, the other thing is easier to then suggest it and not do it.
1: Yeah. Don't ever write your boss an email suggesting problems no. that don't have at least three solutions no. that might okay, be Okay, I'm going to add one to more.
0: It. I'm going to add one okay, more. Okay, go. Um, having fits. You know, so we, I have this sort of matrix that I think about at work, which is a two by two. And one of the axes, it's you're great at your job, you're good at your job, fine at your job. Um, the other is you're a stress creator or a stress absorber. Oh. Oh. Now what you want are a lot of people who are great at their job, who absorb the stress. You know, stuff comes at them. They don't break a sweat. They take care of it. They're not freaking out. Right. You can have some people who are great at their job, who are stress creators. Right. The great salesperson who twice a year has, you know, a meltdown because they don't think anybody likes them. Right. The person who has a meltdown every other year because they don't think they're getting paid enough or appreciated. I mean, you've got some of those just people and you're like, I don't like it. We're going to take care of it. You know, person who's a little brisk with other people. Okay. So then they're the people who are the stress absorbers who are good. They're fine. Okay. You got to, got some of those. Everybody can't be great. The ones who get fired, stress creators who are just fine or not good at the job. Those folks, you move them right out. You move them right out
1: especially in the, in this remote environment that many mm-hmm. of us are in right now because we're already stressed. You can't tell mm-hmm. tone really over email or Slack. Mm-hmm. And so like, I think people are extra freaking out because they're like, she yeah. sent me this thing. I don't know when it's due. And then and I'm like, dude, I just was like flagging that we should get through this yeah. at some time this year. And you could have clarified that with me. You know, it's just right. like, uh, right. I agree with you on this yeah. one. Um, I think that's huge. What about um, what about firing? Like, mm-hmm. when do you know it's time to let someone go yeah. as a manager? And as someone who might get fired, what's your best advice on how to pick their head up and yeah.
0: proceed to yeah. what's next? Okay, so, and I have been fired. Um, as you know, I've been fired twice. So on when do you fire, typically a long time before you actually do. Um, I, always, I always say, and I think it's true that as soon as I start to think, you know, I'm not sure they're going to make it. I don't know that anyone has ever come back from that. You know, it just God, they're really just, it's just not clicking. It's gosh, it looks like we scaled through them. Let me, let me give them, you know, and you give now there are lots of points, coaching, 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 and people change. But that moment I have the, I don't feel like this is going to work. You know, it's my subconscious already knows. Okay. Well,
1: and the, the quote that I use for this is if you think you need to fire someone, it's probably already too late. Too
0: late. Yep. Yep. And I've had one person come back, maybe two. And I look, I've been at this for decades, Britt. so that's not a lot. Um, so you want to, and particularly in a startup, you want to hire slower and fire faster, right? You know, spend that extra few interviews, seeing if you can confirm that someone is going to be additive to your culture in a positive way. I didn't say culture fit because that means lack of diversity, but additive in a positive way that, that grows you or moves you. And then fire, you know, it's bad to keep someone around after their expiration date. It's bad for them because they're in a job that's going nowhere. It's bad for your company and it's bad for the people around them. And so it's it hurts so much, but sometimes it can be an act of kindness. A horror, The worst day of their life and, you, you know, horrible, but ultimately it turns out for the best. And that's actually how, on the flip side, having caused, you know, maybe shaking things up a little bit too much at a couple of the places I worked, you know, when you find yourself on the other side of it, one time when I was in a business disagreement with my boss, another time when I was told I wasn't a culturally correct for the company, you know what, you say, this is the, one of the best days of my life. I, it doesn't feel like it, but if they didn't want me there then I wasn't going anywhere. I was spending more time with these people than I do with my family. Mm-hmm. This is not how I want to spend my life. Thank you for the push. And now I've got more learning to do that I can do. What didn't work? What did I, or what did I learn about myself that I can then take on to my next thing? And it's going to be okay, right? Um, we have a happily a growing economy. And, and look, I know I recognize my privilege. This is not true for everybody. But, um, you know, as as, um, you know, for those of us who are in professional positions, et cetera, we can find the next thing we can add to our skill set and find the next thing and and count as a blessing.
1: Yeah, actually, so many of our self-made students have been in a transition like this, especially during the last year. Right. They might have gotten furloughed, laid off completely or had to take a step out. but. They were like, you know what? This was the perfect time to pivot my career. I actually hated accounting. I always wanted to be an artist. I just never knew how to make a business out of being an artist. But now this was the biggest blessing of my life. I'm the happiest I've ever been. I make half my salary as an accountant, yeah. but I'm like a happy artist that spends time with my kids and loves my life. And, and so like sometimes that's an amazing thing. End of a chapter and beginning of the next. Yeah, and you it, should it happened, be counting your blessings. Hap-
0: it happened to my son. My son has wanted to be um, a comedian or a writer for a comedy show or a stand up comic. And he was working at a nonprofit um, right before the pandemic and didn't, you know, it, the fit was not there. And I think I should leave. And I, of course, being a terrible mom, like, you should stay, you should stay. He left. <laughs> it, you know, it was, they were like, yeah, this just, this is the thing, and then I said, "Okay, fine. Take some time and and pursue your comedy." And then the pandemic hit, um, but uh, remotely, he got a job writing on John Oliver show. And I'm wow. like, "God damn, Jonathan!" <laughs> yes. Like, and you like, know what? Wow. I think deep
1: down, like I think your son always knew. I think we always know. We have this instinct inside of us that is telling us what we want to really do, mm. what we're good at like where we want to spend our time and talent and we we it's hard we to sort listen. of shush it we shush it because the world thinks this other thing of us you know like a year and a half ago I was going on Good Morning America and the Today Show and doing DIY projects all the time I love that but today I'm a venture capitalist I run yeah. you know a 10-week accelerator to help women start companies and I still run that other company but I only felt like that was okay to do I guess because of this pandemic and. I've always wanted to be a venture capitalist. I've always wanted to do investing. I just never felt like it was the right mm. time or the world expected that of me. And But this was the push I needed. And so it wasn't yeah. even getting fired, but it was just sort of like, you know, opening my eyes to mm. this this voice I've had inside of me for so long.
0: So, mm.
1: you know, yeah, I think all of us have it. Oprah calls it the whispers. And mm. and I think we all hear the whispers. We just mm. need to hear them more mm-hmm. loudly.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so I tell you, I you how say, I tell you how, how I how I hear my whispers. It's my heart that sometimes when I talk or it's this feeling of a shot of adrenaline. When I was trying to find my next step, when I would talk to people about doing X, I'd not feel anything and talk to people about doing Y and then I'd feel a little quickening. And so that I was able to read my body. I love the quickening
1: of your heart. Yeah all right well i do want to segue into money milestones you are the queen of money investing all the things we would like more money i think all of Mm -hmm. us who are listening (laughs) right now so what is the first step in accruing more money for ourselves
0: Yeah. yeah it depends on where you are um if you are in credit card debt you are going to commit yourself to getting that paid all the way down to zero You are going to stop buying things that mean you need to use credit. You are instead going to cut down on some of the luxuries you enjoy and start paying it down. You know, for other folks, it means um, starting an emergency fund, getting three to six months of take-home pay. Three is fine if your life is less complicated, six if your life is more complicated, kids, et cetera, of take-home pay in a savings account that you have as a cushion. It may mean... If you've done that, investing in a 401k at work, which doesn't feel sexy or exciting, but if we're trying to build long-term wealth, the tax benefits of that you know, are significant. It may mean if you've done those things, um, some percentage out of every paycheck going into, I hope, an LVST investment account, which has been you know, invested. So if you step back, historically, the two biggest builders of wealth, generational wealth, are investing in the stock market and real estate. Those are the two. And if you have a choice based solely on the financials, you choose the stock market every day of the week. And so beginning to 1% out of every paycheck, 2% out of every paycheck into a diversified investment portfolio like LVS puts together um, has historically been a driver of significant wealth, build, wealth creation over time.
1: Well, I want to stop there because I think what you guys do is so interesting, but people might not totally get it. So like just to put it in layman's terms, if I take, you know, $100 of my paycheck and put it in my Vest account, you guys will go invest it for me in the stock market and whatever things you think yeah. are good investments. So I don't have to deal with it. Also, if I want to, I can take some of that money and do my own investing if mm-hmm. I really want to pick the stocks like I want to definitely put into Tesla and Disney and like yeah. all my favorite brands that are going to grow for sure and give you guys some to manage in like yeah. the more boring and basic accounts. Um And, and that's an option too, but having both of those options at your disposal is great because you guys are really good at what you do and we should probably trust you (laughs) with our money to make more of it for us. And in general, we should be in just investing. Like I don't think many of us think about, especially women taking 1% or 10% or 5% or whatever percent of our paycheck and investing it. We think about putting it into a savings account.
0: And it it hurts us because if you put it in a savings account, you earn almost nothing. You know, people are concerned about inflation these days, even at small inflation numbers that eats away at your money. And so you actually go backwards every day. Whereas in investing, because historically of the growth we've seen in companies, in their earnings, in the economy, the stock market historically has been upward trending. It's bounced around and there have been some big bounces, some roller coaster like stomach lurching bounces. But, Britt, the combination of two things, the power of the stock market to move up, of us to form new companies as entrepreneurs and grow those companies, and some fall off and fail, but overall, the economy and the companies grow. And number two, a concept called compounding. Buffett has called compounding, or Albert Einstein, I'm sorry, called compounding sort of the eighth wonder of the world. And what that means is when you invest, say, a dollar, and you earn a return on it, and then the market goes up again, and you earn another return, you don't just earn a return on the initial dollar, you earn a return on the return. And then you earn a return on the initial, plus the return, plus the return, and then plus the return, plus, And so it snowballs. And so it can take a while to make your first thousand dollars off of whatever, but the second one can come sooner and sooner. And so the power of these two things is so great that if you and I got into a time machine and went back to 1900, and invested what was a lot of money at the time, $1,000 in the stock market and just left it there and allowed it to compound and grow. Even though we've had the pandemic of 2020 and 1918 and World War One, and World War Two, and the Great Depression and the Great Recession and the Great Crash of 29, and the Great Crash of 87 and the Subprime crash and you know the internet bubble burst and the Russian ruble crisis and stagflation and inflation, the Vietnam War and the Korean War and the Afghanistan War and you know you get the point. I think I hit the two world wars. You get the point, right? Horrible stuff. You know how much money that thousand bucks is worth in 2021? $58 dollars. Whoa, whoa. The stuff you talked about in terms of well, let me buy Tesla. Let me do this. Let me do that. By all means, knock yourself out. But do be aware. That is not necessarily investing, that's trading. And that can be fun and you can make money from it. You can also lose money from it. Where your real nest egg is, is patient investing. A lot of people have retired well off of investing. Not as many people have retired well off of trading, right? Mm -hmm. And trading, by the way, when you do it, would you believe most of the vast, vast, vast majority of people underperform the boring investing that you just talked about. Why? Because you trade, you pay fees. You have chances to make mistakes. The market tends to know more than you do. You may be like, oh my God, Tesla, I'm totally you know, shorting it. Um, but what you're essentially doing is saying, I think I see something coming in the future that the tens of thousands of traders on Wall Street, whose full-time job this is, been doing it for decades, went to school to study it, right? It's all they think about. It's all they do. That we coming home at night and being like flipping on CNBC and like, I think Tesla's going down. Somehow we have an insight. We might. It's called pure dumb luck, right? (laughs) So women outperform men when we invest by a lot, 1% a year, which is a lot compounded over time. The reason men do more of the trading and women do more of that boring investing. And so- Uh. In most places in life, we love the pizzazz and the dazzle and the what, and we like to pay extra for stuff. In investing, I want you to keep it super boring.
1: Thank you. Well, and I wasn't trying to insult you with boring. I think it's boring because you literally like, okay, I'm just going to like automatically send you money yeah. from my paycheck and I'm not going to think about it or touch it. Yes, so it's I boring love it. for me because
0: <laughs> I have nothing to do. You know I, the what exciting is part? Exciting? The exciting part is what? you look at your broker and you look at your how much money you've made. Not no guarantees, yeah. by the well, way. That's but, true. That's the exciting know, part. No guarantees. Yes. The, the the past is no guarantee of the future, but um, yeah, historically, sure. that has been the fun part. Like, oh, ah,
1: look at that. Yeah. I think trading is is like our own ego at play, yeah. which is probably why yeah. men do it more than women. But it's like, okay, Disney just launched a streaming service. I think this—they're going to be the next Netflix. They're already huge. Okay, I sh- sure all these Wall Street people know what they're talking about, but I obviously know a lot yeah. too. And you know, it's a but little here's ego the, boost.
0: Here, here's the problem in U.S. households. Only, only, And only 16% of US households do women take the lead or co-lead on investing. When women outsource the management and investing of the money to the man in their life, when the money comes back to them, and it most often does because we outlive the, the men in our lives, sadly, 74% of us have a negative surprise. And so what you were just talking about, the cocktail party, I made a killing on such and such, you know, I think men feel the pressure to have that, I'm good, you know, just as women are told we're bad with money, Men are told they're good with money, even if they're not. And yeah. so, oh, I better not let the side down. You know, I bought Disney for streaming, whatever. And then they're not mentioning, you know, but I lost money over here or, you know, I over traded over there.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. And I love the, the part about women outliving men. Yeah. We need to be in control of our own wealth. We need to know the numbers. I remember my mom for most of my lifetime did not know how much money I was know. in our family bank account. Yep. Yeah. She she told me that when I was like an adult, (laughs) I was like, are you kidding me? Like,
0: but Britt, the tragedy and I'm older than you are is, you know, I have friends who've lost their husbands and a couple of them, you know, unexpectedly and in the worst week of their lives, the worst week of their lives, they have to find where the money is. And when they do, it's not as much as they thought it was. And there, you know, there is nothing that will break your heart as when your friend or your sister, you know, have that happen to them. And then, you know, they haven't, maybe they haven't worked. Maybe they have plans for the kids that they can't fulfill. Um, It is truly terrible. And in fact, 98% of widows and divorcees say the number one piece of advice they would give to other women is to be more involved in their money. Now, you can't get 98% of widows and divorcees to agree on anything except that.
1: (laughs) Oh, I love that. Well, I think we will wrap it there then. But I do want to know, you know, the show is called Teach Me Something New. We generally give our listeners a homework assignment for the week. So whether it's for their career advancement or for their financial acumen or investing acumen, what assignment might you give our listeners this week?
0: Yeah, um, well, look, I'm all about career advancement. That being said, it always takes two to tango, right? You got a boss, you have funders, you have customers. What I um, would like to focus on is something that you have total control over, which is what steps you take to get yourself in better financial shape. Money today is women's number one source of stress. Taking action, opening an investing account and beginning to invest, putting more in your savings account. Action like that is the number one driver of our confidence in our future. So my homework assignment, would be to come over to Elevest and spend 15 minutes a day looking at our magazine, doing a little bit of reading. It's—I promise you—the content is not boring. I hope it will be useful. Maybe sign up for our app. We have what we call the Edit, where we have five screens of, of pithy learning for you, and it can be a way, you know, for everybody to begin to learn a bit more. It does—it's not full of jargon. I promise you, it's not boring. Um, but to begin to increase their financial education.
1: Love it. Sally, thank you so much for being here for all the amazing tips and tricks. I know I learned a lot. I hope everyone out there did as well. If you want to go find Sally, she's at lvs.com. You can also find her on the internet, on Instagram, Sally <laughs> Um And if you enjoyed the show, please make sure to Share it, rate it, review it, however you want to send it to someone else. And I I think that is all. So go out there, make some money, advance your career, be confident, and report back to us. I'm at Brit on Instagram if you want to leave me a note too. Sally, thanks so much for being here and to all of our listeners, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Brit Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Allie Ives and Allie Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Jay-Z and Aaron
0: Peterson.